Chapter Thirty Two of the Petticoat Commando by Johanna Brandt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kidnapping Mauser the Kitten. One afternoon, when Mrs. Van Warmelo and Hansie were returning home, as they passed the house occupied by one of the biggest lords in the British Army, they saw an exquisite black kitten sitting on the steps leading from the street to the garden. Such a kitten! Coal black she was, except for a snowy shirt front and four dainty snow white paws. A delicate ribbon of pale blue satin was fastened in a bow round her neck, and she blinked at the passers by in friendly consciousness of her superior beauty. Oh, you darling! Hansie exclaimed. I wish you belonged to me. She does, Mrs. Van Warmelo answered, and stooping, she picked up the unresisting kitten and placed it in her daughter's arms. It was done in a moment and was meant as a joke, but Hansie took the matter seriously and walked on, rapturously caressing her small trophy of war. Hansie, put that cat down, Mrs. Van Warmelo said, looking anxiously up and down the street. No, indeed, mother, you gave her to me. You know very well I did not mean you to keep her. I declined to have anything more to do with the matter. She walked rapidly on, and Hansie followed in some uncertainty, but holding on to her newfound treasure as if her life depended upon it. Soon she caught up with her indignant parent and said in a conciliatory tone of voice, Surely, mother, you don't suppose I would steal a cat from anyone else, but Lord is trying to take my country. Why should I not take his cat? Two wrongs never made one right, her mother answered. But do as you please. You always do. Hansie kept that kitten, and, after Carlo, loved it better than any other pet, and even Mrs. Van Warmelo relented as she watched the playful creature hiding in the shadows and springing out at every passer-by. "'What are you going to call her?' she asked her daughter. "'Oh, I don't know. Perhaps I'll go and ask Lord—' what he called her. She stopped, observing her mother's frown, and then went on. "'We must think of a name, a nice, appropriate war name.' A few moments later the kitten crept into a corner, with a small mouse held firmly between her jaws. "'Oh, mother, look, she has caught a mouse already. She is going to be a splendid mouser. And, oh, now I have a name for her. We'll call her Mauser, mother dear.' "'So be it. Mauser is her name, and hereafter she may be seen invariably in Hansie's company, a welcome addition to the small, harmonious family.' Perched on Hansie's shoulder as she sat reading under the veranda, or purring round her, as she lay under the trees, with Carlo watching by her side, Mauser was ever to be found where her young mistress was. And when the latter went to town, she and Carlo were invariably escorted to the gate by the faithful Mauser, who again welcomed them on their return. The kidnapping episode had taken place a few months after the British entry into Pretoria. A full year had gone by, and Mauser the kitten had developed into a beautiful, full-grown cat, and was the mother of five mischievous little ones, gray-striped and very wild, 
for whom she had made a home in a deep hollow in the trunk of one of the big weeping willows, the very tree under which Gentleman Jim had built his small kitchen of corrugated iron. It is a stormy night in November 1901, a month remembered by all for the violence and frequency of its storms. Hansie is bending over her diary, trying to make her entries between the crashes with which the house is shaken. Her mother is lying on a couch nearby. Her tired eyes are closed, but she is not asleep. Who could sleep in such a storm? Perhaps we may be allowed to look over the writer's shoulder. November 8th, Friday, 10 o'clock p.m. And this terrific storm has been raging for hours. It seems incredible. It was the same last night and the night before. As I write, the roar of thunder never breaks off, peal after peal, crash after crash, vivid, dazzling flashes of lightning, torrents of rain mixed with hail, and a howling wind. Such a night is never to be forgotten. One is thrilled and impressed by its magnificence, by its awful grandeur, and its majesty, and yet I think one would go mad if it continued for any length of time. I feel as if I am going mad with the thought of our thousands and thousands of women and tender little children exposed to all this fury. Where is the God of pity tonight? Surely not in our desolate land, not in our ruined homes, not in South Africa. The fourth storm within a few hours, each more violent than the last, is just approaching, and this one threatens to surpass the others in unabated fury. The Lord hath turned his face from us. The hand of the Lord is laid heavily upon us. His ear is death to our cries and supplications. I cannot write. My soul is crushed by the sorrow, suffering, and sin around me. I feel better now, but the struggle has been great. At the front, fierce blows have been struck lately. Our men are fighting as they never fought before. How the storm rages on. In my sheltered home, safe from the fury of the elements, I think I suffer more than the women under canvas for their sakes. The letter I have before me must be answered now. He asks me to bind myself to him definitely. I have decided to do so. It is a weighty step, and God knows. But I have long prayed for guidance, and it seems to me clear enough that we are destined for one another. So tonight, in this raging storm, with a heart filled with the desolation of land and people, the blackness of the present, the hopeless misery of the future, I am going to write the words which will bind me forever to L.E.B. Strange betrothal, strange sequel to a stormy life. But perhaps, perhaps the future holds something for me of calm and peace. With throbbing brow, she went out into the night to watch the storm from a sheltered corner under the veranda. Nothing fascinated her so much. Suddenly, a blinding flash, accompanied by a sound like the sharp cracking of a whip and instantly followed by a deafening roar of thunder, drove her to her mother's side. "'Are you all right, mother? That bolt felt very near. I thought it struck the house.' It was frightfully close, Mrs. Von Wormelo answered. Come and sit beside me here. I am quite sure one of our big trees has been struck. 
She was right, for walking through the demolished garden next morning, they came upon the spot where the bolt had fallen, and found one of the gigantic willow trees furrowed from top to bottom, with the outer bark scorched and curled up like paper, and the white bark showing underneath. Jim was breaking down his little kitchen with all the speed he could. "'What are you doing, Jim?' Hansie asked. "'Jim's shifting,' was the answer, soberly and sadly made. "'But the storm is over. All the danger is past. You can safely stay on now.' "'No fear, little missy. The big boss was very cross last night, and when him cross, he don't care what he do. Jim want to live a little longer.' Hansie laughed. "'I wonder where Mauser could have been with her kittens last night,' she exclaimed, putting her hand into the deep hollow of the tree. "'The nest is empty. Do you know, Jim?' "'No, little missy. I suppose Mauser's time has not come yet,' he said, with a stolid philosophy. "'I suppose not. But alas, alas, Mauser's time was soon to come.' for the soldiers setting a strong trap to catch a wild cat, which was nightly plundering them of their meat ration, caught Hansie's beloved Mauser instead, killing her instantly. No reproaches from her mother were added to her keen remorse as she bent over the motherless kittens, whispering, I will care for you, as she would have done, but, oh, remember this, that honesty is the best policy, and all is not fair in love and war. Tragedy was in the air. A beekeeper came to Harmony one morning to help Mrs. Von Wormelow take out honey from the hives, and this disturbance, combined with the fact that the soldiers had unwisely set up a smithy near the beehives under the row of blue gum trees dividing their camp from Harmony, enraged the bees so much with the noise and the smoke and heat of the smithy fires, that they attacked man and beast in vicious fury. In a few moments all was confusion. The servants rushed about frantically in their endeavors to bring the fowls and calves under shelter in time. The two women took refuge in the house, closing the doors and windows, while they watched the consternation and disorder in the camp. Fortunately, there was only one horse in the smithy at the time, a beautiful chestnut mare belonging to the provost-marshal, Major Poor. So Mrs. Von Wormelow was told afterwards. The soldiers seemed to lose their heads entirely. They ran away, not into their tents, but right away into the copies on the other side of the railway line. The beekeeper cut the halter, with which the unfortunate horse was tethered to a post. Then he, too, took refuge. What followed was pitiful to behold, and will never be forgotten by the women, helplessly and as is fascinated by the scene, watching from their windows. The infuriated bees, deprived of all other living things on which to wreak their vengeance, turned in their thousands on the helpless mare, which stood unmoved, as horses do, when lashed by hail, or panic-stricken under flames. She made no attempt to save herself, but with bent head and ears laid flat, she stood still under the furious attack of countless bees. One or two of the men, wrapped up to the eyes in their coats and waistcoats of their comrades, cautiously approached the mare at their own great peril, 
and tried with all their strength to move her from the scene. In vain. As if rooted to the spot she stood, with her forefeet planted firmly on the ground, and they desisted in despair, once more fleeing to the hills. All day they sat upon the hillside, homeless, many of them hatless, until towards afternoon, when, the fury of the bees abating, they ventured to return to their tents. The next day, when the dead mayor had been removed for burial, a letter was brought to Mrs. von Wormelow from the provost-marshal, commanding the immediate removal of the beehives to some safer spot in the lower portion of Harmony. This was done by degrees, little by little every night, in order to accustom the bees to the change gradually, and there was never any repetition of the attack. Hansi, writing to her brother in his prison fort at Ahmednagar, that his bees had put a valuable English horse out of action forever, received in reply a postcard, with a single comment, My brave bees. End of chapter 32